गुड इवनिंग गुड इवनिंग वन एंड ऑल प्रेजेंट हियर हैप्पी वुमेंस डे टू ऑल दिस इज अ स्पेशल डे वी आर हैविंग अ फर्स्ट सीपी सेमिनार इन तिरुपूर ब्रांच इन द फॉर द कमिटी 22 23 इज अ स्पेशल डे फॉर ऑल फर्स्ट ऑफ ऑल आई वेलकम द टुडे स्पीकर सीए मुत्तु अभिरामी advocate from chennai for readily accepting our invitation to uh, present the paper today uh, warm welcome you madam thank you sir um, i welcome all the members and students who are uh, joined virtually joined through this meeting uh, we are having a lot of uh, confusion uh, regarding to this uh, deeming provision deeming means uh, what are be the without any explanation that should be deemed to be the income of the associate any expenditure or investment unexplained not in the satisfaction of the assessing officer that should be added to the income of the associate it should be big burden for the tax practitioner or chartered accountants to handle this issue uh, as today's speaker is uh, well versed in this uh, area he is more focus on this area he will uh, today teach upon uh, what are the burden of proof that should be we have hold uh, to protect the, our assessee and uh, get out from this uh, she is going to elaborately discuss the things in later uh, members uh, can join this meeting and continue enrich our knowledge thank you another Dear colleagues, hearty greetings on the occasion of International Women's Day today. The significance that 8th March has in our lives is a testimonial to the value and importance that women have in our existence. Friends, today women are evolving in every part of the world with her grit, determination and perseverance. A woman can succeed in any sphere of life. Many recent reports worldwide have shown that when girls and women are educated and empowered, the lives of the rest of the population across all sectors of a society also improve. Our rich Indian tradition has always accorded due equality and respect to women. The social and economic condition of a nation can be de depicted by the status of women of the country. The same is true for any profession as well. I feel proud to state that our women members have grown exceptionally well marking their presence both at the national and the international levels the percentage of women members and female students is growing significantly with time and today women chartered accountants form approximately 27.8% of the total membership and female students occupy around 42.3% of total student base our girl students are also achieving better results consistently it gives me great pleasure to share that all the toppers 
in the institute's CA final June 2021 exams are girls and in December 2021 final exam new course also two out of three toppers were girls. This reflects the strength, might and caliber of women and what women can achieve if they so desire. Friends, our institute aims to inspire women to look beyond the conventional societal beliefs and fulfill their aspirations by harnessing their true potential and power. I firmly believe that women have the agility and strength to achieve real change in our society and to pursue new paths through proper guidance and encouragement. It is an endeavor of the Institute of Chartered Accountants of India, the second largest accounting body in the world, to empower its women members so that they are able to go out in the world prepared to face any challenge with skills, confidence and grace, bringing positive social change for themselves and their families, other women and the society as a whole. The ICAI through the Women Members Empowerment Committee is working dedicatedly to develop the skills, build capacities and augment the capabilities of women members to handle various assignments in their professional affairs. For your betterment and career advancement, this committee has already undertaken many initiatives by coming out with various technical publications and organizing various events for strengthening the technical acumen of women members. I hope that you are aware of these activities and must have taken full benefit arising out of these initiatives. It is my sincere suggestion to all the women members to actively participate in the activities of ICAI as well as Women Members Empowerment Committee so that the objective of the committee is truly achieved. I wish you all success in all your future endeavors. Happy Women's Day once again. Thank you. First of all, let me wish all the participants a very, very happy Women's Day to all our powerful, talented and dedicated women out there who have been working tirelessly to achieve your dreams. 8th of March is celebrated as the International Women's Day to commemorate the success of women in all spheres of life. This day commemorates the academic, professional and personal achievements of ladies and women across the globe. Nowadays, women have succeeded in breaking prejudices, breaking barriers, obsolete norms and are contributing enormously in the growth of organizations. In fact, the United Nations has laid out sustainability development goals and SDG 5 in particular talks about women empowerment, equality of gender and achieving gender equality by empowering women and girls. The ICI has also decided that in line with the SDG goals set out by the United Nations and the very important SDG 5 which talks about equality of gender, the Women Empowerment Committee of ICI is working to achieve this. I congratulate and compliment the Chairperson of WMEC, C.H. Priya Kumarji, the Vice Chairperson, C.A. Priti Savalaji, 
and all women members who are associated with this committee to celebrate our women membership over the years the women membership has been increasing so also has been the proportion of girls pursuing the course of chartered accountancy this augurs well not only for the profession but also for the nation i am sure under the able leadership of our chairperson and vice chairperson the wmc will continue to conduct various programs to hone the skills of our lady chartered accountants in the field of taxation auditing accounting indirect taxes income taxes insolvency valuation forensics and various other emerging areas on this occasion of international women's day let me once again extend my best wishes and compliments to all our lady members and wish all of you a very very happy international women's day 2022 thank you I'm very happy and proud to introduce our today's speaker, CATV Muthuabirani Advocate Ma'am. She has completed her CA and post-graduation diploma in international taxation from IIT. She is a graduate in BA BL Honors from School of Excellence in New York, and she has completed BL Business Law in PN Vyasa Ambedkar Law University. Muthuabirani Ma'am is a practicing advocate with a vast post-graduation experience of more than She specializes in income tax litigation and handles a very variety of cases in income tax. She is appearing before the Honorable Madras High Court, Honorable Income Tax Appellate Tribunal, Honorable National Compliance Tribunal, and other classic judicial forums. She was the chairman of the Tax Committee and Research Committee, constituted by the Transparent Branch of Ethics of IIT for the years 2019 and 2020. She is the best faculty for LLM taxation in Tamil Nadu Doctor Ambedkar Law University. She is a life member of Revenue Board Association and the All India Federation of Tax Professionals. She has presented papers on technical topics in various forums like SSIIT, various branches of IIT, city services of IIT, Revenue Board Association, Patanjali Association, and Association of Students, and CA Suraman Suraman. She was also served as a student at the Vice Chair Chairman Student Association of Tamil Nadu. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for this opportunity, and I wish everybody a happy Women's Day. And uh, this is the first time I am speaking in Tirupur branch, so uh, thank you very much for the invite. And let's uh, move on to the subject. And uh, we will have the session like I'll handle it, and then we'll also have a live session where you can. put question and answers regarding uh, uh, litigation aspects of 68 69 uh, these uh, sections uh, we can also take up the questions towards the end so the topic for today's discussion will be burden of proof in income tax proceedings with special reference to section 68 to 69b uh, i am intending to cover the area this way like first we will go on with the general principles of burden of proof then we will see how evidence act is applicable for income tax proceedings then we will see certain principles for burden of proof in income tax and then we will see what is the burden of proof in case of deemed income under section 68 to 69c so meaning of uh, burden of proof so burden of proof is an obligation 
to prove the truth or falsehood of a fact or proposition proof it does not mean something which is very rigid or in a mathematical sense and this proof varies it varies according to the proceedings so for civil proceedings as far as civil proceedings is concerned preponderance of probability would be the degree of proof whereas for criminal proceedings the proof should be given beyond the doubt beyond reasonable doubt and when it comes to the rules for burden of proof the fundamental thumb rule is that he who asserts must prove and there are certain exceptions to this if certain facts are within the knowledge of others or if there is a presumption of law or fact in one person's favor then he who asserts need not prove it will be the other party who should be proving that so this is the general applicability as far as burden of proof is concerned and what are the principles of burden of proof so on whom does this burden of proof lie generally so it is used in two uh, distinct senses one is the burden of establishing a case this is fixed by law it rests upon the person who substantially asserts the affirmative of the case so this would be the party who would introduce the evidence to say if i am claiming an exemption under section 10 the burden of proof of establishing that it is an exempted income is upon me so this is the burden of proof in the fixed sense and the second type of burden of proof is the duty to adduce evidence which is ambulatory which is shifting in nature so i give a proof department comes up with some uh, information or inquiry stating that why it should not be accepted as an exemption so in this case this keeps shifting so this burden is something ambulatory or shifting so burden of proof it can be seen in two different ways one is the fixed one on whom it lies who has to establish a case second is the one that is, that keeps shifting i adduce evidence department comes back saying why it is not acceptable and then i give further evidence to say why my income has to be exempted so this is ambulatory or shifting in nature this shifting would happen in the sense it lies on the person who would fail if no evidence were given on either side if i don't give an evidence you don't give an evidence what will happen so if no evidence were given on either side what will happen so this is the ambulatory form of burden of proof and there is a distinction between burden and onus burden is fixed in nature whereas onus keeps shifting so this is decided by the supreme court in the case of ragavamma versus chenchamma that there is a difference between burden and onus and how important is burden of proof it is important in the early stages of a case it is important when no evidence at all is led by either side but if parties have joined the issue they have led evidence if conflicting evidence can be weighed to determine which way an issue has to be decided then the burden of proof the question of burden of proof is only academic in nature the next important principle concerning burden of proof is that when there is a presumption in favor of a party the burden of proof is on the opponent the classic example is section 292c and 132 4a so during a course of search some documents have been found and it is it appears that it is the handwriting of the person in whose possession those documents are there so the presumption is that it belongs to the person from whom it has been seized so this is a presumption by law now the burden to say that it doesn't belong to me is on the assessee from the assessee's premises some documents are being taken by the department during the course of a search and the presumption is that 
it, if it is collected from me, it, it is presumed that it belongs to me. Now, the burden of proof to establish that, that this document does not belong to me is on the assessee only. So that is why the principle is that when the presumption of law is in favor of a party, the burden of proof is on the opponent. And burden of proof is not upon the party who denies a claim. Suppose I say that I have not taken a loan. How do I prove that I have not done something? If I am denying something, so you can't say that the burden is on you to prove that you have not taken a loan. Unless, of course, there are other documents which are being given by the department stating that, in fact, you have taken this loan. So in, in a normal sense, the negative cannot be proved. The defendant, it is not possible for the defendant to prove the negative. And next important principle in burden of proof is the principle of uh, adverse inference. Suppose I have a document to prove a claim that the amount will not fall under section 68 or 69. But I'm withholding that document. Despite having the document, I am not sharing the document with the department. I'm withholding that document. In those cases, an adverse inference can be drawn against me. Because you're withholding that document, particular document, an adverse inference can be drawn against me. So this is a very important principle. This adverse inference, at times we can even take with respect to the department also. Take a case of reopening where reasons to reopen are not adduced by the assessing officer. Say there is a 148 notice. I'm, of course, I'm not getting into the new amended area of 148A and those procedures. Take a case of the pre-amended law of 148 notice where I get a 148 notice where I seek reasons for reopening and those reasons the department is not giving. You file an RTA, no response. You take an appeal under RTA for getting those reasons to reopen, no response. It's, it keeps happening in such a way that the reasons are denied. The matter, suppose if it travels to the tribunal and the bench requires you to file this reason to reopening. And suppose if the department is not filing this reasons for reopening, then the court can draw an adverse inference against the department stating that you have not produced the reasons for reopening. Therefore, it can be presumed that you have no reasons to reopen. Therefore, the assessment would be quashed. So this principle of adverse inference can be equally applied both to the SSE at times even to the department. Then next important principle is that the plaintiff cannot take advantage of defendant's weakness. The plaintiff's case must stand or fall on his own evidences. Suppose the department wants to tax a particular item. Merely because I am I as an associate, if I'm not able to adduce evidence, doesn't mean that the plaintiff's case becomes stronger. The department's case becomes stronger. So on all basis, the plaintiff's case, it should stand or fall on the basis of evidence led by him. So these are the general principles concerning burden of proof. Now, if we take the provisions concerning burden of proof in the Evidence Act, it falls between section 101 to 114 of Evidence Act. And this says that this act is applicable for all judicial proceedings before any court except arbitration proceedings. So the question here is that whether the provision of evidence act is applicable to income tax proceedings or not. The consistent view is that consistently the Supreme Court has taken a view that provisions of evidence act are not strictly applicable to the tax proceedings. Strict principles and provisions of the act are not to be applied. That is to say what need not be an evidence but only a material 
that can be produced and relied by a party can also be used to decide an issue. Not necessarily it should be an evidence in the proper sense. It can be any material also because that is why if you take section 143.3, it says that based on any material or material gathered by the material or materials gathered by the assessor. And that is why not just direct evidence is applicable in income tax proceedings, even circumstantial evidence is applicable when it comes to income tax proceedings. That is why we have theories of human probability. Human probability theory is one of the most widely used theories by the department to tax income from other sources, especially concerning this deemed income. We have classic cases of Mohanakala's case. We have cases of Sumati Dayan. We have the cases of Durga Prasad More. These are all classic cases of applying human probability theory and holding the issue against the assessment. Take the case of uh, Sumati Daya. It's a very landmark judgment. The assessee held that, uh, was, was, had stated before the settlement commission that the income which she received was all through uh, horse racing. Prior, uh, it was a period where income from horse racing was not taxable. I think 72 or 73, that period. So all this income she received only through winning the jackpot and horse race. And she gave the tickets for uh, participation in the horse race. Um, all, uh, she said the source is only the horse race. But there are certain significant questions raised by the settlement commission to hold that it is not probable that you earned this income only through horse racing. That is because very many reasons were attributed by the settlement commission in stating that on the day of race, there seems to be no drawings from the books of accounts. And even for a seasoned player of this uh, horse racing, it is possible that it, he cannot win every match that he participates. In this case, it was attributed that in whatever match the assessee participated in every, every competition, she won jackpot. How was it even possible? Even for a seasoned player, it is not possible. How it is possible that Every time when you go and appear, you have won a jackpot. So the inference was that the tickets were purchased later. The winning tickets were purchased by the SSE later to hold that all her undisclosed income was only income from race winning. So this was the inference taken by the settlement commission and held that the surrounding circumstances, the probability doesn't seem that you have earned this income through horse racing. Human probability theory was applied and the issue was held against the SSE. Similarly, Mohanakala. Gifted deeds were produced, proper affidavit, everything was there. But factually, the department proved that it was only a case of a cross gift, compensatory gift. So even though documents were there established, still, if you look at the surrounding circumstances, it is possible that this gift is only an undisclosed income of the assessee, rooted through somebody else. And Supreme Court held applying human probability theory. We cannot take this as your disclosed income. It has to go through as your undisclosed income. So why this human property theory took up so much of relevance and importance in an income tax proceeding is because not it, it is not necessary that it should be just evidence as strictly speaking evidence as per the evidence act. Any material or materials. We have seen n number of cases in such and seizure where by mere loose sheets addition were made. Of course, subject to various safeguards, that's a different thing. But predominantly when additions can be made just by stating that, okay, this document has been seized. Handwriting was yours. Additions were made. So strict principles of evidence act would not be applicable for income tax proceedings. So 
material or material gathered would also be applicable so now the recent uh, conundrum regarding this evidence act which we can see is the application of electronic evidences section 65b set of evidence act whether the certificate is necessary or not for an income tax proceedings we, we will be seeing a lot more of these issues in the coming years because in olden days or in the past times anything when during a search and seizure what we could find is loose sheets documents sale dates etc but now again time and again in the recent searches pen drives electronic evidences so in those cases section 65b of the evidence act says that you have to get a certificate for taking the 60, uh, for taking for using the electronic evidence only then it is an admissible piece of evidence whether because a certificate a 65b certificate was not provided can you just ignore that evidence can you just ignore that electronic record for an income tax proceeding all these are questions which are going to come large in the years to come in the in, in the coming days we can see that but the answer to that would be maybe you need not apply 65b directly to a proceeding but if you can break the case stating that the evidence is not admissible that electronic evidence is tampered you cannot use that excel sheet you cannot use that pen drive it is not taken for my premises if you can break that evidence through proper factual premises factual uh, contents it is possible to break that electronic evidence you need not just rely upon 65b you can simply state why that evidence is not applicable to you why that excel sheet seized from an ex person's uh, laptop is not applicable to you why those tally books of accounts are not applicable in the case of bassi you can just create you can just break that uh, evidentiary value so these are some important aspects concerning evidence act and income tax so income tax act is wider not only in respect of relevancy but also in respect of the proof of the material which can be taken into consideration by the assessing officer and the income tax authority are not strictly bound by the rigors of the technical rules they are, but they are not prevented from invoking the principles of evidence act when an occasion demands in any case material gathered in the assessment proceedings of one person is not a legal evidence in the assessment of another person and because we say that okay assessing officer may not bring proper evidence in the sense it it would not be applicable as per the evidence act it doesn't mean that the assessing officer can make just a pure guesswork and make the assessment without reference to any evidence or any material at all supreme court held in dakeshwari court in this case is not entitled to make a pure guesswork and make an assessment without reference to any evidence at all and it is necessary that principles of natural justice should not be violated and the assessee should be permitted to meet the case as revealed by the inquiries so if there are some records if there are some documents without the assessee's knowledge it cannot it cannot be used behind the back of the assessee it cannot be used against him classic cases of cross examination during course of search and seizure proceedings some uh, statements would have been obtained from some third parties by that statements assessment would have been made in my case i would not have been given an opportunity at all to cross examine that person that person may say something but why should i suffer the addition i should be given an opportunity to repeat that so i should be given an opportunity to cross examine that you are using that statement against me you are using a document against me so in all these cases i should be given an opportunity just like that i get an evidence i make an assessment that is not possible and it is a assessee's right to demand such natural justice such right even at the assessment level you need not go up to tribunal to seek all these things even at the assessment level we need to ask these questions 
You give me an opportunity to cross-examine. You are using some statement against me. Let me be given an opportunity to cross-examine. You are using some documents against me. Seized from third-party premise. I do not even know who that person is. Simply because he has written my name, you are using that against me. Give me an opportunity to rebut that. Let me go through that. So any document or any statement done at my back, it is not permissible. The courts have heavily come down against us, those cases. So this is with respect to the applicability of Evidence Act to income tax proceedings. Now we will see certain general principles of burden of proof in income tax cases. So the primary onus of proof rests on the authorities, income tax authorities, to show that the income for which they seek to tax is liable to be taxed under the Act. So it is for the revenue to establish that a particular receipt is an income liable to be taxed. Supreme Court. But this burden is not as heavy as in the criminal proceedings. Criminal proceeding is beyond reasonable doubt. But this burden is less than even an ordinary civil proceeding. Even in ordinary civil proceedings, even less than that, the burden would be, if it is discharged, it would be sufficient. It is discharged by merely showing that the assessee is in receipt of an income. And the assessment carries with it a validity, a presumption of validity and legality. And there is no burden on the assessing officer to show by positive evidence that the accounts are unreliable or the figure which the assessee quotes are incorrect. There is no very hard and fast burden of proof on the assessing officer. And the assessment also carries a presumption of legality. So when the assessing officer completes an assessment proceeding, it is presumed that it is legal. So there is burden of proof on the EGO, assessing officer, but it is not very heavy. It is in fact lighter than a civil normal civil proceedings. And an assessing officer's finding could not be discharged unless it is altogether capricious, and unless it is altogether injudicious. You cannot use the records at all. You cannot, you, you cannot accept that assessment order at all. But of course, the things are that the way in which many assessment orders are being passed is that there are no evidences at all. Mere surmises, mere guesswork of the assessing officer, we find orders being passed. And if an assessee receives a certain sum of money during a relevant accounting year, or if certain cash is found credited in the account of an assessee, it is for the assessee to explain from where he got the money. So the burden lies on the assessee to explain the AO, the true nature and source of the receipts. This was held by Govindaraju Mudalia's case and Sri Lanka Banerjee's case, Supreme Court. And the burden of proof in these cases would be in such a way that it is on the taxpayer because he alone would be able to reveal the facts of the financial circumstances. I, I, I know my financial circumstances. Only I can explain from where I got this money. It is a matter which is a special knowledge of the party. So only I can say from where I got the money. But these two judgments have laid down this. But the court in Paramisetti Sita Ramamma case modified the decisions of Govindaraju Mudaliyar and Srileka Banerjee. And it laid down that the burden of proof in earlier two cases upon the SSE to prove the source and nature, if it is disclosed by the SSE, would be slightly modified. How did it modify? The court said in the subsequent judgment of Parmesatiyamma, no doubt the SSE has to prove the nature and source of a particular income, of a particular receipt, no doubt about it. But if the SSE has disclosed the nature and source, and if the department does not dispute my 
fact, dispute that nature and source that I have disclosed. I, I'm showing this is my nature and source. The department does not dispute the truth of what I've stated. In these cases, merely because the assassin is not able to lead all evidences towards that particular fact, it doesn't mean that addition can be made. So if he has failed to lead all evidences in support of the contention that it would not fall under a taxing provision, doesn't mean that addition should be made. So in essence, in essence, the principle is that as long as I prove the nature and source and such nature and source is not disputed by the assessing officer, addition under these deemed income cannot be made. That, that means I have proved the nature and source. I am not able to prove all the documents, all the evidences to show that this would not fall under the other sources under 68 to 69D. Doesn't mean that it has to be added. So it has to be disputed by the AO for making an addition. So the burden of proof, in a sense, it stops by stating that this is my nature, this is the source. It's a business income. I've been carrying out business, the source is the business only. And it has been taxed already in my regular books of account. Stop. Period. It stops there. There is no dispute about that. A senior officer cannot touch that and make an addition. So this is a very important aspect. And next general principle regarding burden of proof is that, that if an income is exempt, that burden, if, if an assessee claims that the income is exempt, then the burden of proof is on the assessee to show that the income is exempt. Similarly, when it comes to expenditure, the genuineness of expenditure claimed as a deduction or allowance is on the assessee. If I am, if I am claiming certain expenditure, the burden of proof is on me. <coughs> Excuse me. So if I am claiming some expenditure, the burden of proof is on me to say that expenditure is in fact genuine. Purchases I have to prove. Expenditure I have to prove. So any deduction that I claim, I have to prove. So this burden is on the assessee. And similarly, any business laws to be set off, burden is on the assessee. I have to prove that there is a business law and I'm making a set off against it. And the revenue cannot be called upon to adduce contrary evidence to draw adverse inference against the assessee upon whom the burden of proof lies in the event the assessee's failure to adduce satisfactory evidence. So this is very interesting because take a case where take a case where the assessee is not able to produce satisfactory evidence. Assessee is not able to prove satisfactory evidence. No, one cannot say that. No, the department, you have to bring in evidence to say why this income is taxable, that is not permissible. If assessee fails, assessee fails. That's all. So that is again another common principle. So with this, we have dealt about the general principles on burden of proof. Now we will move on to section 68. Under section 68, I have uh, divided the issue into two. Issues in cash credit and issues in share application money, share premium and share capital. What is the position concerning the burden of proof with respect to these two areas? So when it comes to cash credit burden of proof, so the initial burden of proof is on the assessee. The assessee has to explain the nature and source by producing evidence in support of the identity of the party, by giving the names, by giving the address of the creditor, by giving the PAN number of the creditor. This creditworthiness has to be proved by showing probably the income tax return, by showing his uh, uh, income earning capacity. So his creditworthiness can be proved and the genuineness of the transaction. Genuineness of the transaction, we can prove by stating that bank statements can be given uh, documents and deeds and evidences, notarized documents, these things can be adduced to prove that in fact a loan has been taken, in fact a deposit has been taken, 
So genuineness of the transaction, it's through bank only, left to transaction, all these details we can give. Documents like confirmation letter from the creditors, income tax assessment details, the other parties also assess to tax, the bank account details of the parties, and all other relevant evidences can be given to prove the genuineness of the credit. And the evidence at this stage, because this is the initial leading period for the evidence, I am leading the evidence, I am going to make my case stand. So in this area, the evidence that I lead should be very robust. It cannot be very sketchy. I cannot simply give that, okay, I received some uh, loan from some third party, some relatives, and without any documents or evidences, I cannot do this way. Whatever I lead at this stage, initial stage, should be very clinching evidence so that the department finds it difficult to break those documents. So such should be the nature of documents that we produce, which will be very robust. So once this initial burden is discharged, the burden then shifts to the assessing officer. So for making an addition, the assessing officer should necessarily rebut the evidence given by the assessee by bringing positive materials. If I am giving a document, if I am saying that I have received this loan from so-and-so person and I am giving the loan, uh, the deed also, document also, deed also I am producing. To break this documentary evidence given by the assessee, the assessee has, assessing officer has to give positive material. Probably what he can do is he can take a, a 131 examination from this person and state and, and he may give he may give a statement that I have never given a loan to this party at all. So such should be the positive evidence to be brought by the AO. AO cannot simply say, no, 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 this deed I am not accepting. He cannot do that. And if there is a statement taken from such a creditor against me, Dasasi, then it is my duty to ask, okay, let me take a cross-examination. Let him say in front of me that he has not taken the money. I'll subject him to cross-examination to know what is the truth. In fact, I have taken, he has in fact given the money to me. So, these evidences gathered by the assessing officer must be brought to the assessee's knowledge for the assessee's rebuttal. The assessee can definitely seek cross-examination of witnesses and evidences. And another thing is that in most cases for 68 edition, what we see is that we would give all these documents. The assessing officer would not consider any of them. He will simply say, I am not accepting this. It is not satisfactory. I don't find it acceptable. And make an addition. That, that should not be the case. What we can probably say is you issue summons, you issue 131 to the creditor, I will produce the creditor or you can directly call the creditor. You can take statements from him. You, without doing any of these exercises, simply by stating that I am, I am not satisfied with the evidences, those additions made by the assessing officer will not sustain at all. They won't sustain. So this is very, very important. And, and, and another important aspect is that before this amendment made in the finance bill 2022, this budget 2022. Earlier, the position as far as 68 is concerned, the source of source need not be proved. Unless it is a company, I'll be handling that in some time from now, unless it is a company where public or not substantially interested, where it is an individual assessee. It is sufficient that I prove the source from where I got this loan. That is sufficient. I need not prove the source of source. I need not prove how that person got that source. That need not be proved at all. That is a very uh, established position. So many judgments are there which states that assessee cannot be asked to prove the source of the credit, source of the source. He can be proved only, he can be asked to prove only the source of the credit, not the source on source of the credit. That is not possible. But this position is now amended from this uh, budget 2022 
wherein it has been clearly stated that even in a case of an individual source on the source has to be proved i am taking a loan from party x and i am proving the creditworthiness of that that party if i am proving the source that would not be sufficient i have to now prove how mr x has got that money what is the source for mr x imagine how much of a difficulty this would actually have on a practical implication because many many businessmen can take a loan from money lenders small businessmen can take money from money lenders how was it possible for an assessee to take the money lenders return of income money lenders source would he be will he part with those documents with those information to me as an assessee because i am just taking a loan of hand loan of 5 lakh rupees or 10 lakh rupees how is he going to give me all these documents how would how was it even possible for me to prove the source of source these are special documents and evidences which are there within the specific knowledge of the other party i should not be burdened to prove all those things i should not be burdened to produce all those documents this is going to be very litigious in the years to come going forward if we are going to have any loan in the books of accounts and if i am not able to prove the source assi office is going to add it and then i have to plead stating that it is not within my knowledge at all how is it even possible for me to prove that to produce those documents this is going to create a lot of difficulty in the years to come if it is a proper loan from a, a financial institution it is okay but hand loan money lenders loan from relatives who who would be having you know in, in many places 50000 lakh savings they might not be put into uh, they are, they might not be filing return of income at all and if you are going to say you have to give all these documents and you also have to give the loan who is going to come and give loan to us not only the loan you have to bring all the documents also as though i am the person who is giving the loan so this is going to create a lot of difficulty in the years to come so this is very uh, important aspect concerning this amendment made to section 68 The next important, interesting issue concerning the 68 on burden of proof is that Orissa Corporation, very famous case of the Supreme Court, where for a 68 addition, summons were served on the parties. The parties did not appear, except for issuing the summons. The AO did not do anything else at all. No further inquiry, no further process done by the assessing officer. I have issued the summons. Party did not appear. Make an addition. The court said no. Because the parties did not appear, you cannot be the assessee cannot be. troubled the party failed to appear you issued the summons party failed to appear and you don't have any other information you have not done any further inquiry assessing officer you have not done further any further inquiry so just because the parties did not appear and because of your failure to do further inquiries the assessee cannot be fastened with the liability so this is a very important case concerning the summons but here the fact is that it is a public limited company ursa corporation is a public limited company so they pleaded stating that there would be so many shareholders how is it even possible for us to make them come and attend uh, the hearing for summons but whereas in of course i am i'll also be dealing with certain judgments which are in favor of the revenue where it was held that uh, for a private limited company where shares are issued on a private placement basis how it is difficult for a company to prove them to prove the source you have to do that you can't escape that of course judgments are there which will be handling it in some time from now so coming to the explanation which are filed by the assessee as i held some time back these explanation filed by the assessee should be based on evidence they should not be merely fantastic or fanciful and the word used in the punjab and haryana high court judgment is that the evidence should not be fantastic or fanciful so it should be based on evidences take the cases of where all these uh, 
human property theory cases on Mohanakala, Durga Prasad Mohre, or Sumati Dayal, and all these cases, they have been held that the explanation offered by the SSC is fantastic and fanciful, but it cannot meet the standards of an evidence, and therefore we are not able to agree to the fact that it should not be taxed. So this was what the courts have held. And when the explanation offered by the SSC is reasonable, it cannot be rejected by the AO lightheartedly without any inquiry. It should not be arbitrarily rejected. Addition cannot be made on mere suspicion. And rejection of explanation should also be based on positive evidence, as I explained some time back. So the opinion of the assessing officer should be formed objectively with reference to the materials available on record. So we have so many precedents to state this position. But in reality, if we find most assessment orders, you don't, we don't find any rationale or reason for making addition under 68. Classic cases of demonetization cases. Now, everything is in CAT appeal. Most of the cases are there in CAT appeal, awaiting hearing notices. All of us would be facing this issue. Everywhere, cash deposited, addition under 68, addition under 69, 69A, anything as the, as the asking officer feels. No further documents, no further evidence is attributed. Whereas I am coming forward and saying that I have the cash balance on that particular day. Sir, I have the cash balance. I have the closing balance as on 7th of November. Opening balance as on 8th November. I had sufficient cash. I have, I have the source. I have deposited. It is my only my business collection. I am giving a chart. Last year, what was my business collection during this period? This year, what is my business collection? My turnover matches. My gross turnover is almost the same, similar. What, what was there for the previous year, what is there for the current year? It is there. No, 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 no. Demonetization, cash deposited in bank, addition made. Demonetization, cash deposited in the bank, addition made. No, no rhyme, no reason. These are all the cases where it has to be fought out at higher forum holding why the explanation offered by the SSE was not accepted by the of course, in other tribunals, very many judgments have come, come concerning demonetization where it has been held in favor of the SSE. Many judgments are, of course, there. Cases where 44 ADA, you have not produced the books, uh, you have not proved the loan, 68 edition, you have not proved uh, the source for the cash deposit, 68 edition. I am proving that whatever is there in the bank accounts, whatever I have deposited in the bank accounts, it has already been considered in my gross turnover for 44 ADA. Many cases of 4488 demonetization time, additions were made under deemed provisions. So, the fundamental principle is that the assessing officer should lead positive evidence to reject our explanation. That is very important. And next interesting issue concerning section 68 is the uh, 68 and burden of proof is books of accounts. So, if, if you look at the language of section 68, it is very clear that 68 can be invoked only if books of accounts are maintained by the assessor. The condition precedent is that existence of books of accounts. Only if there are books of accounts, 68 can be invoked in the first place. And the assessing officer must be satisfied that there are books of accounts maintained by the assessee and the cash credit is recorded in the said books of accounts. There should be a satisfaction. There should be a positive satisfaction on the part of the AO. To state that there is, yes, there is a books of accounts and yes, there is a credit entry in the books of accounts. And this books means only the books of the assessor, not any third party. Take the case partnership firm, partner. Partners, partnership firm is a separate accessible entity and individual partner. Books of the partnership firm cannot be treated as a books of the partner. 
it is possible that the partner might go under 44 ada whereas the firm would be maintaining books of accounts and crediting entries in its books you cannot take the books of the partnership firm and ask the partner in his individual capacity in his individual assessment to prove the source that is not possible as held by the courts and i would be discussing two uh, two interesting judgments of the bombay high court and punjab and haryana high court concerning this books of accounts one is that case of arun kumar muchala bombay high court so it was in that but in this particular judgment was held that it is incumbent on every assessee doing business to maintain proper books of accounts so it may be in any form if the assessee has not maintained the books of accounts he cannot be allowed to take advantage of his own wrong and addition under 68 was made in this case even though the assessee did not maintain any books of accounts Court said that okay, you have not maintained the books of accounts, but any businessman has to mandatorily maintain the books of accounts. You have not done that. Because you have not done that, you cannot say that sixty eight will not be applicable because I have not maintained books of accounts. You cannot take advantage of your own wrong. Bombay High Court held it in this case, and in this particular case, they refer to another Punjab and Haryana High Court case of Sudhir Kumar Sharma HUF. It is a case where. the assessee accepted that he maintained the books of accounts but he did not produce the books of accounts that is when addition under section 68 was made in the punjab and haryana court the sequence is that punjab and haryana court judgment came first in that particular case the assessee was constantly seeking time that he is preparing the books of accounts he will be submitting in the due course due course due course he never submitted the books of accounts that means he has accepted considered that he is maintaining books of accounts but he has not produced it therefore the punjab and haryana high court held that because you maintain the books of accounts but you have not produced it therefore the entry in the credit we will be taxing it under section 68 whereas in arun kumar amuchala's bombay high court judgment tasasi stated that i never maintained books of accounts where is the question of adding section 68 to me and incidentally bombay high court also referred to this punjab and haryana high court's judgment in its uh, decision but clearly speaking punjab and haryana high court judgment is distinguishable that is a case where assessee accepted that he maintains books but he has not produced it this is a case where adverse inference is is being drawn against assessee you said that you are maintaining the books of accounts but you have not produced it adverse inference is drawn but arun kumaraj musala's case the bombay court is entirely different he says he pleads that i have not maintained books of accounts so in that case how addition under section 68 is possible this is a question and similarly First of all, is it mandatory to maintain books of accounts for all SSCs? It is definitely no. It is not mandatory for all SSCs. And if at all for an SSC who has to maintain books of accounts if he has not maintained, if he has not maintained, penalty is anyway there. Separate penalty can anyway be levied. But for making an addition under section section sixty eight, books must be mandatory. So that is the uh, aspect concerning books of accounts and burden of proof. and interestingly if we look at uh, section 68 it uses the word books whereas section 69 to 69b uses the word books of accounts but if we take the definition section section 212 it defines books or books of accounts it defines books or books of accounts includes ledgers day books cash books accounts books other books whether kept in written form or uh, or print out of data floppy disk tape or any other electromagnetic data so as such there is no such difference between books and books of accounts what we see in 68 and other section 69 to 69b 
books and books of account there are i don't think there is any sort of conflict over there and uh, next interesting issue concerning this burden of proof in 68 is that there is a delhi account judgment where cash credits were recorded in rough cash book of the sec there were no proper explanation but addition under section 68 was sustained addition was sustained in that case similarly if the books are rejected in entirety the assessing officer cannot rely on any entry in the books of accounts for making an addition under section 68 this is a classic principle i am rejecting the books therefore i cannot rely on any entry in the particular rejected books of accounts for making an addition under section 68 but supreme court in khel khan mohammad hanif's case held that issue on whether it would amount to double taxation if estimation of income is made and also addition under 68 is made it was held that there is no double taxation i am making an estimation i am also making an addition under section 68 the question was whether this would amount to double taxation or not the court held that it would not amount to double taxation because estimate is made on the disclosed source 68 addition is made on the undisclosed source so you cannot say that it is a double taxation estimate made on the disclosed source whereas 68 addition is made on the undisclosed source so there is no double taxation but this position was modified in the subsequent supreme court judgment of devi prasad vishwanath prasad case where it was held that it depends on facts and circumstances of each case whether the cash credit entered in the books of accounts and whether uh, rejected and estimation made and still 68 addition made it would depend on facts of each case there is no hard and fast rule stating that one is undisclosed source other is the disclosed source i can make both estimate and 68 so that view was taken in the subsequent judgment of the supreme court after considering the case of kel mohammed khans so it was considered and then only it was decided so this brings us to two school of thought i would say on one side can there be a part rejection of books only for the purpose of estimation only for making the estimation i am rejecting the books so does it mean that whatever information which is available in the book that rejected book it vanishes into thin air merely because it is rejected take a case where cash loan is shown in the rejected books of accounts can 269 ssb invoked in those cases this is one set of argument for stating that rejection is also possible and after rejection also you can still ask the assessee to prove any entry in the rejected book so this is one school of thought i would say one argument i would say on the other hand if books are rejected where will the assessee assessing officer consider the cash credit the books are rejected that means the books are no longer in existence that means the assessing officer is not going to trust the books of accounts therefore there is no question of explaining the credit from such rejected book it is not possible you have rejected my book so why do you want to take an entry from that book you cannot do that part rejection that is not possible and one of the purposes of maintenance of books of accounts is for computing the income so if the books are rejected the assessing officer does not believe in the entries in the books don't believe the entries and the income computed by the assessee relying on those books of accounts he says it is wrong then again how the same books of accounts that was rejected can be used by the ao to ask the assessee to explain an entry so he cannot blow hot and cold at the same time to accept what suits him and to reject what does not suit him should the rejection be not holistic he says i am rejecting your books it is rejected gone that's all i am rejecting your books for the purpose of making an estimation let me reject i will only say that you are you are um, 
income would be this much i mean making an estimation on the other hand they see there is an entry in this book you come on explain me that explain that entry to me so this is like classic case where the assing officer is blowing hot and cold at the same time that should not be permitted and now coming to 68 the second aspect we saw about uh, identity and genuineness and uh, uh, we'll now look into the next aspect of capacity of lender capacity of lender so it is assessee should prove the capacity of the creditors to advance the money in fact this is a person of means man of means he can definitely give me a loan he can advance money to me and the assessee is not supposed to know uh, this is one aspect of it and there are other judgments which held that the assessee is not supposed to know the capacity of the money lender or the cash creditor that is not possible for the assessee to say so because it is within the exclusive domain exclusive knowledge of the creditor that is why you have section 131 you call that person under 131 and ask what is his source i have proved my source i have taken the loan from the money lender i have taken the loan from this person i have so proven that i have proved the source if you doubt that you issue 131 you can seek the details you have all the powers as an assessing officer your powers are very wide you can in fact in many uh, uh, in fact in many cases the courts have also held that the assessing officer is powerful enough to issue such uh, summons such notices you issue summons you seek the details that is still possible so this is another uh, contrary judgments to hold that uh, issue in favor of the assessee holding that let the assessing officer issue 131 and let him seek the source of the creditor it is sufficient that i prove my source that's all that is sufficient and uh, there are cases which which have been held where just because the cash creditor is not an income tax assessee it doesn't mean that he is not a man of means so only assessees who are regularly assessed to tax only those people can be called to be credit worthy that proposition cannot be accepted it is possible that he might not have filed his return of income but that is doesn't stop him from being a man of means and similarly source of source need not be proved of course these are all uh, source of source need not be proved is a old proposition no longer applicable after the current budget amendment and if the assessee can furnish alternative explanation and if either of the explanation is accepted then no addition can be made that is again a decided proposition and identity of the creditors is not very relevant for check transaction you need not just come and ask the person to be produced as long as you can prove that it is a banking transaction that should be fine and each entry each entry must be separately explained by the assessee that is another proposition every entry of credit must be separately explained by the assessee per contra if you take the other view it had held in many cases it was held that just by mentioning the pan number of the creditor will not be sufficient if you have not produced a confirmation letter if you are not produced if you have not proved the genuineness of the cash credit then it has to be held that the ca has not discharged the burden he has not proved his case and similarly the assessee cannot be asked to explain whether the credit has suffered tax you cannot ask whether that creditor whether that income that that amount which of whatever that the assessee is getting you can't say that whether that has a tax suffered amount or not that need not be proved by the assessee it is possible that the person who is lending the loan lending the amount could have taken a gift from somebody else so you you don't have to prove that this amount is actually suffered tax that is not the case 
and uh, again if you look at from the revenue's point of view there are judgments which has held that merely because the transactions are done by check it doesn't mean that it is very sacrosanct gohati high court has held that all check transaction need not be sacrosanct and if there is a cash credit concerning a deposit from a tenant it will not be necessary to prove the capacity of the tenant to make the deposit it is not necessary you just prove that it is there is a tenancy agreement and you have in fact received the, the deposit of the tenant that would be sufficient you don't have to prove whether he has the capacity to issue the deposit to you or not that is not needed the courts have held and dasing officer excuse me so the assing officer would not be justified if he just directs the inspector to verify the statement on the basis of his report to arrive at the conclusion they are not genuine so he has to make further inquiry and further opportunity must also be given to the assessee to explain the information which is disclosed to the inspectors there are cases where the ao could say to the inspector go verify and come but if that document if it is not produced to the assessee for his rebuttal that is that addition will not be sustained and case of name lending these are the cases where the courts have held the issue against the assessee additions were sustained there are cases where uh, amounts would have been gone from the bank through the check no doubt about it but it would be the bank account which is solely operated by the assessee himself the employer himself the employees of the employer would be the name lenders and who has opened this account who is operating this account all these things were seen in a particular case and the addition was sustained in certain cases holding that this is a mere case of name lending and incidentally there is a supreme court judgment which is a very welcome judgment uh, which is with respect to penalty and quantum addition relating to section 68 so what happened is that uh, normally it would be the quantum which would be proved first and then it will be the penalty but here in this case during the course of assessment proceedings the assessee was not able to prove the uh, creditors and addition was made under section 68 but whereas in penalty during the course of penalty proceedings he has in fact proved that addition under section 68 should not be made he has uh, proved the creditors and lenders and everything was proved in this particular case a supreme court held that Now, because the penal during the course of penalty proceeding, the assessing assessee has proved the creditors. It should be given and it should be applicable to the assessment proceeding as well. And for the purpose of quantum, this these records and documents can very well be taken, and penalty could be deleted, and even the quantum addition would also be deleted. So normally it would be the case where quantum decided first, penalty comes later. But here it is a welcome move where penalty was decided first in favor of the assessee. and then based on those records the court permitted the assessee to prove that case with respect to the quantum also this came up in 2020 judgment basir ahmed sisodia and now so these are basically the issues relating to section 68 concerning uh, cash credit now let us quickly uh, handle issues relating to share capital share application money and share premium if it is credited in the books of the company so with with effect from assessment year 
it was mandated that um, the nature and source of any sum that is credited as share application money, share capital, share premium in the books of a private limited companies, it would be treated as explained only if the source of the source is also explained. That should also be satisfactory in the opinion of the AO. Only then share capital and share premium and such credits of a company in which publics are not substantially interested, it will be treated as crude. So assigning officer should be satisfied to that extent. But this amendment will not be applicable to share capital, share premium or share application money which is received from venture capital fund or venture capital company registered with the SEBI. And it was held that this amendment is only prospective in nature because Bombay High Court in Gagandeep infrastructure case held that this amendment is only prospective. So the cases prior to assessment year 1213, you cannot ask the company to prove the source of the source. Now the issue here, let me explain an issue which, which is possible in this, in this particular scenario of a company. For a company, suppose there are investment by a person in shares. The person admits before the assessing officer that investment is in fact made by him in the company. But he is unable to prove the nature and source of his investment. So no issue in adding this income as succeed in the company's hand. Now this, uh, uh, this, this, this receipt will be added as the income of the company under section 68 because the company failed to prove the source of the source. The, the man came and said, it is my money. I only deposited. I only made the uh, the investment in the shares, but he is unable to prove his uh, source. So addition in the hands of the company is okay. As per the amended section, source of source not proved, add it, no problem. But the question is, can the very same amount be added as unexplained investment in the hands of the investor by the AO, his AO? So would it not amount to addition of the same income twice, once in the hands of the company and other in the hands of the investor? Because the court, because the assessing officer decided that this is this has to be added in the hands of the company only because source of source was not proved. And again, okay, now this is an unexplained investment in your hand, in the hands of the individual shareholder because you have not proved your source. Is it possible? This is an issue which can come. And burden of proof, before the amendment, there were a number of judgments which are in favor of the SSE. Like as long as like as long as the SSE has produced the address, PAN number, identity gets established and subscription is received through banking channel as per SEBI regulation, that would be sufficient and creditworthiness could not be doubted without any investigation of the AO. All these things are the judgments which are in favor of the SSE. And assessing officer should have necessarily pursued the matter further. All these things have been held. And there were judgments which held that if the share application money is received by the SSE company from the alleged bogus shareholders who are assuming, who are alleged name lenders, then why do you want to make the addition in the hands of the company? You proceed against those shareholders. You have the power to do that. The company should be spared. The company has proven that it has taken the money from them. They are not able to make, uh, they are not able to prove that source. You issue notice to those persons and then you can make an addition. Don't make the addition in the hands of the company as uh, undisclosed sources under section 68. So, and similarly, even in the Gagandeep infrastructure case, which held that this uh, amendment is only prospective. In that case also, it was held that the, if at all you want to make an addition, you make the addition in the hands of subscribers. And the, the Delhi High Court also held in value capital services, it held that 
the department must show that the investment made by the subscribers actually emanated from the treasury of the SSC, from the coffers of the SSC, to treat it as an undisclosed income of the SSC. The department has to come up with positive proof to show that, in fact, this money is nothing but the money of the company only, rooted to the subscriber and coming back as share capital. That proof has to be adduced by the department. That was a decision. And even now, prior to this 2022 amendment, current amendment, in many cases, the courts have held that for an individual SSE, source of source need not be proved, and the department has to bring positive evidence to say that it is in fact the money of the SSE only that has been rerouted. If you are not bringing such source, such amount cannot be added at all. That was the position. And of course, but there are various cases in favor of revenue where there are information obtained from investigation being about accommodation entry providers, about their modus operandi, which also contain the name of the SSE as entry providers, and summons were not responded to, affidavits of retraction filed after belatedly after two years, etc. So these affidavits will not have any evidentiary value, and there is no further duty of the SSE officer to prove that it has actually emanated from the coffers of the SSE. So in these cases, merely by the sheer evidences, addition were made. Addition was made in the hands of the SSE. No response to the summons. Entry providers were caught red-handed. Statements were obtained from them. Their affidavits were also retracted. Accommodation entry providers were clearly proved in those cases. So in these cases, it is not the duty of the AO to prove that it is in fact the money has in fact emanated from the company only. That proof is not needed. That burden of proof is not on the SSE. This is a decision in favor of the uh, department. And similarly, in private companies, like I said in the beginning, in private companies, summons issued, the SSE pleads that I have issued this, I mean, you have issued the summons, but the party is not coming up. What can I do? No addition can be made in my hand. The courts have rejected that. It is a private limited company where you will have vital information, vital access to the information of the SSE. Therefore, it is your duty to produce those parties. If you have not produced, that means it, it can be added as Section 68. Again, this, these cases were held in favor of the revenue also. Companies existing only on paper, shell companies, these cases 68 edition was sustained. Entries forging the bank statement. Just prior to the share capital investment, checks would have gone from the company. All these factual circumstances, in these cases, addition under 68 was sustained. But cases where uh, statement from third parties have been obtained under 132.4 during the course of search, but no opportunity to cross-examination, those cases it was held that addition could not be made because it would be against the principles of natural justice. You cannot do that. Best infrastructure, Delhi Court. It has been held this way. And cases where inadequate inquiry was made by the assessing officer. That was not permitted. That inquiry itself was not sufficient enough to hold that the receipt is taxable under Section 68. And similarly, in, 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 in case where it has been held in favor of the revenue, where the during the course of revision proceedings under 263, the commissioner had asked the AO to conduct proper inquiry. The court held there is nothing wrong with that. Let a proper inquiry be conducted only. So these are some cases. Now, so these are some issues that I want to discuss under section 68 for cash credit and share capital. Now we will move on to section 69, 69A and 69B. 69 and 69A contemplates that the assessing officer should be satisfied, you should find that during a particular financial year, immediately preceding the assessment year, the SSE has made investments which are not recorded in the books of accounts, maintained, if any. 
and uh, the Kochi Tribunal is Thomas Ethan case and uh, uh, Nandalal Popley case is Chandigarh Tribunal. The other tribunal which I mentioned is Chandigarh Tribunal. Chandigarh Tribunal also has the same thing. If it is 44 ADA, if the turnover is undisputed, no addition under Section 69C. And when it comes to the burden of proof, so like I said, assing officer, he must record a finding. He must establish that the assessee is in fact the owner. He should be the owner of the money, bullion and jewelry. And such is such money, bullion and jewelry it is not recorded in the books maintained by the assessee. And like I said, investments made in the financial year immediately preceding the assessment year. So this is the primary fundamental burden to be established by the assessing officer. And then comes to the assessing for nature and source. Similarly, for 69B also, similarly, money, bullion, jewelry, the assessing officer has to do the same exercise if at all an addition has to be made. And this finding of the assessing officer should rest on evidence and not on mere opinion, not on mere surmises, not on mere conjectures. 69B does not permit an inference relying on the circumstances surrounding the transaction that the purchaser must have uh, paid more consideration. It is not possible. You cannot just imagine that it is possible that the purchaser must have paid more consideration to you than what is being recorded. And if that happens, notional income would be taxed. Fictional income would be brought to tax. There has to be proof to state that the seller had in fact received more money than what is being recorded. That positive inference, evidence-based inference should be brought on record, not just the presumption of the assessing officer. Delhi High Court, Dinesh Jain's case. So this is with respect to uh, burden of proof concerning 69A, uh, 69 and 69A and B. 69C will come slightly now from now. I'll, I'll just deal with 69C. It's a, it has a slight different connotation. And this burden of proof, it is only on the assessee. It does not include legal hairs. Courts have held that it does not include legal hairs. If you want to make an addition under section 69 also, it should be only on the assessee. After the assessee's death, you cannot ask the legal hairs to prove that. Assessee means assessee, not the legal hairs. So you cannot say that the burden shifted to the legal hairs of the deceased. No, that is not possible. That interpretation cannot be taken. Cochin Tribunal, again, in Selva Kumar's case. Similarly, Pune Tribunal also held the same way. Because these are all the cases where the knowledge of the issue would be within the exclusive domain of the deceased. Legal has would have no clue about it. They cannot be forced to explain and make. And because you're not a, a, making an explanation, I'm making an addition under section 69 series. Now, burden of proof under section 69C. Now, how it is different from 69, 69A and B is that the requirement of books of accounts is not there for 69C. For 69C, there is no requirement to maintain books of accounts. If the assessing officer discovers expenditure that is incurred by the assessee, and the assessee is not able to offer any explanation about the nature and source, then such expenditure can be added as unexplained expenditure. So it takes within its fold, within its sweep, not only expenditure which is reflected in the books of accounts and remain unproved, but also expenditure discovered in the course of search against the assessee where he offers no explanation, no reasonable explanation. In the books, unproved, 69C can be made. Similarly, during the course of search, some expenditure has been found, not recorded in the books, no problem, still 69C addition can be made. Interestingly, interestingly, if the source of the expenditure is proved, no addition can be made. In Kerala High Court judgment of Lakshmi Hospitals, what happened is that the hospital received a certain income which was not recorded in the books. 
and the hospital also paid some uh, paid the fees to the doctors so hospital receives income it pays both income and expenditure both remained unrecorded in the books and the court held that the expenditure stands proved by the income which is received by the hospital you cannot say that the source is not explained and held the issue in favor of the city but now that this uh, case law whether it would hold good even for the coming years is something that we need to see because the budget 2022 has amended with respect to the uh, undisclosed income it held that claim for set off of losses or un un unabsorbed depreciation against undisclosed income corresponding to difference in stock or undervaluation of stock or unaccounted cash payment it is not permitted the budget has now been amended it is applicable for such and survey proceeding so if there is during the course of survey unrecorded stock might be there difference in stock might be there undervalued stock might be there or unaccounted cash might be payment may be there so you cannot claim any set off or losses or unabsorbed depreciation that is not permissible already for section 68 series this uh, uh Uh, this uh, this aspect is there because there in these cases you cannot it is not permitted to be set off again sixty eight income if it is an if as I see if the assessing officer holds that it is an undisclosed uh, source under deemed income under sixty eight to sixty nine D then the assessing is not permitted to claim set off or losses now this extended to even the income portion of it you cannot claim any such uh, set off of losses or unabsorbed depreciation that is not permitted post amendment. and interestingly section 69 it requires only the source of the expenditure not the authenticity in cases where uh, in one case where there was a special audit conducted under 142 2a there were vouchers uh, there, there were there was expenditure but all the expenditure was not uh, there with proper vouchers it was not authenticated by vouchers it was held that it is it, it, it requires only source you need not prove the authenticity therefore the issue was held in favor of the uh, assessee and similarly 69b addition cannot be made merely because a seller declared a higher price like us remember this suppose a seller during the course of uh, uh, some proceeding holds that i have declared a higher price cannot just because it has been made you cannot make an undisclosed investment under section 69b in the hands of the purchaser that is not permissible so these are certain issues relating to section 68 to 69 uh, a b and uh, c can we go for question answer session or can i handle section 132 4a and 292c so i leave it to the floor if you can handle question answer session on this deemed income we will take down because it might take some time for us to handle the questions or i can go for uh, 132 4a and 292c with respect to specific reference to such proceedings what would the audience feel i would go accordingly because i was told up to 8 o'clock so now that it is 7:30 Now that it is seven thirty, it was. Okay, I'm finding you. Sorry, I can continue. Yes, ma'am. Okay, maybe after uh, we close this down, maybe if there are some questions, we can still take it up. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Now, burden of proof concerning search and seizure proceedings. Two important sections concerning this would be one thirty two four a and two ninety two c. So during the course of search, if any books of accounts, documents. Money, bullion, jewelry is found in the possession or possession or control. Please note the words possession or control of any person. Then a presumption is raised. What is the presumption? It covers three situations. The document it belongs to the person from whom it is recovered. Its contents are true. It is the handwriting of the assessor. Now, this presumption is rebuttable, meaning the assessing 
Asasi can lead evidence to say that the document does not belong to me, the page does not belong to me, the contents are false, or it is not my handwriting. So this presumption is rebuttable as held by the Supreme Court in Maitrani's case. This is one aspect of it. So this presumption would not be available for the purpose of framing an assessment. The court in Maitrani's case held that during the course of search under 132-4A, documents are found. There is a presumption that belongs to the SSE. Signature belongs to the SSE. Contents are true. This presumption is there. No doubt about it. But you cannot extend this presumption to the assessment proceedings. You cannot say that during the course of the assessment, uh, because yes, 132-4A is there. That means I presume that it belongs to you only. You have to prove this. That presumption cannot be extended to assessment proceedings. But this judgment has been overturned by an amendment to section 292C. 292C, which held that it is presumed that during the course of any proceedings, this presumption will hold good. During the course of any proceeding, this presumption will hold good. Thereby, during the course of assessment proceeding also, this presumption would lie that the documents belong to the person from whom it is seized. The contents are true. Its handwriting belongs to the person from whom it is seized. So, this uh, 292C, it is a retrospective amendment from 110 1975. The amendment was, I think, made in. Roman, please. Amendment was made in 2008, but with, with effect from 1975. Amendment was made with retrospective effect from 1975. That during the course of assessment also, this presumption can be taken. So this possession and control, possession and control, these are the crucial words in 132.4a and 292c. We have to note that possession or control, the words used are possession or control, they are used disjunctively, not conjunctively. It is not and, it is or. So the language denotes that the possession and control of the assets and books found in the course of the search and survey need not be with the same person. Possession could be with one person. Control and ownership could be with the other person. Possession could be with the searched party, whereas the control and ownership could be with some other party. So merely because I it, it is found in my possession doesn't mean that it has to be taxed in my hands. In Abdul Karim's case, Kerala High Court, a courier cannot be assessed merely because he was carrying the cash on behalf of the owner of the cash. The words are distinctively used. So possession could be different, control could be different. I might be possessing that particular money, bullion or jewelry or the asset, immobile asset, documents put into immobile asset. Possession would be there. But of course, when it comes to immobile property, it is easy to say because the name of the party would be there. But when it comes to money, bullion, jewelry, I might be the possessor, but the control could lie with somebody else. My employer could have given that money, bullion, jewelry to me to keep it with my safe custody. So merely because it is taken from my question doesn't mean that it has to be added in my hands. That is very important as well. Now, this is where I would like to link section 110 also, 110 of Evidence Act and section 69A, of course, 69A, I'm touching one more time. It is a case where some wrist watches, it's of course a very old judgment, 1988 judgment, Chuharmal's case, Supreme Court case only, Chuharmal's case. Some wrist watches were found during the course of search in the assessee's premises. 
Now the court invoked section 110 of the Evidence Act. Section 110 of the Evidence Act states that when there is any question whether any person is the owner of anything or not, which he is in possession, if there is a question about the ownership, when the person is in possession of something, the burden to prove that he is not the owner is on the person who says that he is not the owner. I am holding a vacant piece of land. Take an example where I am holding a vacant piece of land. I am possessing it. I am in possession of a vacant piece of land. If somebody alleges that I am not the owner, then the burden is on the person who alleges that he is not the owner. Based on the section 110 of Evidence Act, the Supreme Court held that wristwatches found in the course of the assessee's premises would be added under section 69A because the assessee pleaded that he is not the owner. That means burden is on him to prove that he is not the owner. If he is not able to prove that and if the watches are found there, it is presumed that he is the owner and addition under section 69A has been made. But there is another judgment of uh, Bombay High Court in Rose Ben decision where it was clearly distinguished how 110 would not be applicable to a case of section 69A. Section 110 of Evidence Act would not be applicable to a case of 69A. Section 110 of Evidence Act would operate in a field of a common law jurisprudence where possession is nine points in law. It's a common law jurisprudence. If I possess something, that means it belongs to me. So it is for the contester. It is for anyone who wants to oust the possessor. It is for the contester to say, no, no, you are not the owner. I'm, suppose I'm holding some, uh, I'm holding a piece of land. I'm, I'm, I'm in possession of a piece of land. And somebody wants to oust me of that possession. It is for him to prove that I am not the owner. That operates in a different field. That cannot be equated with section 69A. It was held in Rosebend decision. So that was questioned. And 132.4A, it contains a similar presumption. And it is only for seizure during the course of search. You cannot equate it during the course of assessment and make him the owner and assess him in his hands. That was the Bombay High Court judgment in Rosebend. But of course, now that... Uh, this is slightly changed because the amendment made it to section 292C, but it is not entirely bad because the presumption is a rebuttable one. The SSC can lead evidence to say that the money bullying jewelry does not belong to him. It belongs to somebody else. If he can lead that evidence, then it is still possible that presumption can be broken. And uh, for invoking this section 69A and for this uh, addition to be made under 69A, in Mangilal's case, Rajasthan High Court held that it is for the department to prove that the SSC is in fact the owner of the article and not merely because he is in possession of the article. So that uh, judgment is current judgment. I think Mangilal came up in, such, uh, in 2007. So the assessing officer has to prove that he is the owner. But of course now 292C would operate in favor of the department. So the SSC has to necessarily state how he is not the owner. So this is one aspect of section 292C and 132.4A concerning uh, evidence act on Section 110 Evidence Act and how it operates for Section 69A. And constantly the courts have been ruling that addition cannot be made on the basis of mere presumption. So during the course of search, some notings were found. So no presumption can be raised when the SSC has offered his explanation with affidavit and duly supported by documents and evidences. Now the burden shifts on the assessing officer to prove the case. He has to now prove the case. That the, SSC, uh, that the explanation offered by the SSC is not correct. It is false. It is incorrect. And it is a common knowledge that assessment cannot be made on presumption. Any presumption should be backed only by direct and corroborative evidence. 
if there is a presumption that during the course of search it has been found in the place of the assessee it should also be backed up by proper evidence to state that it is in fact belong to the assessee that is the important aspect of all these judgments similarly blue sheets notings on blue sheets so if there is some blue sheets that are being found of course this is why i explained in the beginning how even blue sheets can form part of evidence for the purpose of making an assessment under 1433 so blue sheets can be a basis of assessment by virtue of this presumption under 1332 so the onus is on the assessee to satisfactorily explain the contents of the document because he is the one who is possessing the document at the time of the search and he has a special knowledge of the certain facts so he has to explain those facts but a judgment kolkata high court in ajanta footwear's case it held that even without proper explanation from the assessee presumption under 292c would not be available unless the explanation of the information in the loose papers provides some link to assessee's undisclosed from very welcome judgment the loose sheets found notings in the loose sheet it should have some link with undisclosed income of the assessee only then addition can be made merely because you have 292c merely because you have 1324a addition cannot be made in the hands of the assessee otherwise what happens is that anybody can make any addition based on the presumption a seeing officer should necessarily bring a link between the undisclosed income and the items found during the course of the search materials possessed materials possessed during the course of the search there should be a link and this presumption do not apply to dump documents you have a column where it is written 10 that's all you cannot make two two zeros 10 means 000 it is has to be presumed that it is 1 lakh it has to be presumed as 1 crore it is dumb document the document is not sufficient it should be a speaking document in fact there are judgments which say that if a particular document can be interpreted in two way it is a dumb document i can say 10 is 10 i can say 10 is 1 crore during diary classic cases during search diaries found entries made zero zero left whether it is two zero three zero department can cannot make a presumption they can't say it is only ten crore can it is just hundred crores they can't make that presumption it is a dumb document it does not have any evidence in that and <laughs> interestingly this presumption of two ninety two c cannot come in the help of the assessee to say that okay two ninety two c presumption is there therefore I will not prove the nature and source that. Uh, defense cannot be taken by the assessor. Assessor cannot say because two ninety two c presumption is there, so it means that nature and source stands proved. No addition can be made. That is not the case. Nature and source is different. Presumption under two ninety two c is different, and there is no contradiction between uh, nature and source to be proved and the presumption under two ninety two c. So it is a judgment of a Mumbai tribunal. So the 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 important aspect is that there should be a finding from the assessing officer under section sixty nine. and the presumption under section 292c would not operate as such very easily the assessing officer should given should give a finding there should be harmonious reading of 69 and 292c and the assessing officer must give his finding first that the uh, that the assessee is in fact the owner of the money bullion jewelry before making an addition because 69 is an extraordinary this series of 69 is an extraordinary addition it is deemed income and it is strongly worded that it should the assessing officer should find that the assessee is the owner of the investment or money bullion and jewelry and 292c is only a may presume section here if you take section 69 series it says has to be find it has to be found that the assessee is the owner whereas 292c is a may presume 
make the zoom. So, sixty-nine series is hard, very strongly worded. Whereas two ninety-two, I would say, in a, it is in a way, it has been worded lightly, so that the SSC can rebut that presumption. That is why that may. It is a presumption, rebuttable presumption. So this is extremely important concerning section sixty-nine and two ninety-two to see. And burden of proof uh, of concerning loose sheets and uh, discovered during search. Kamala Prasad Singh case. It's a partner tribunal judgment, which is a classic case which holds detailed principles. As to when an addition based on a loose sheet can be made or not, what is the year of addition? What is the date of the entry? Who is the sign? Who who has signed that particular diary or that uh, notings? There cannot be any casual observation. Date, time, period—all these things have to be proved. If there are some deficiencies, then the document is a dumb document. The judgment holds. And similarly. There should be a correlation of these notings with the regular books of accounts. If my regular books of accounts and the loose sheet notings cannot be correlated at all, then the loose sheets lose its evidentiary value. That is very important. Only if correlation can be made, addition can be made. Similarly, coded notings, like I said, forty-eight zero zero one zero, that is also again coded notings. It is very difficult to establish coded notings. That is important. So any addition based on dumb documents cannot be made concerning sixty eight, sixty nine, sixty nine A, and sixty nine A, B, and C. And similarly, most importantly, there cannot be any presumption relating to the year of transaction. If you have a seized paper, a dumb document, or a loose sheet as such, as such, there should be specific about which year, which date, it has to be mentioned. Only then that presumption is valid. Otherwise. You cannot make such addition. This is again Ahmedabad tribunal. So these are uh, some things that I wanted to share concerning burden of proof in income tax proceeding. So now we'll go to question and session. If any questions, if anything has to be answered. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you for your wonderful session. Thank you so much. Members, if you have, members, if you have any queries, you can raise them. Very nice presentation, madam. Happy Women's Day. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, excellent presentation. I think uh, because of paucity of time, we have missed some points like uh, the income that uh, that has been uh, found to be the assessee's income can be split into two years if it is found for. Uh, suppose if I am having a fixed deposit, say dated uh, four years back or five years back, and Correct. the fixed deposit, if the assessee is able to prove. That is a combination of two other deposits made sometime earlier. Then the SSC can claim that that uh, the income is to be split into two and is to be um, assessed only in those two years and cannot be combined in that single assessment year and can be taxed. Perfect, sir. So I think Perfect. That is one point that is to be made, madam. Perfect, sir. And, uh, Perfect. And the second thing is the order of the assessing officer should be a speaking order in every respect. Wherever he is accepting the um, um, uh, um, the arguments given by the SSE, either positively or negatively, it should be a speaking order in every respect. If Absolutely. it is not a speaking order, perhaps the higher authorities may not accept that speaking order. There is a room for any additional uh, uh, thing. 
Any other questions, sir? Maybe there are some, maybe there are some other questions, but because of paucity of time, there may be 
uh, stopping it. Perhaps you can allow them to give their um, uh, views and uh, questions uh, to the institute so that you can forward to them to the concerned speaker and get the answers and then release. Sure, sure. I'll also share my notes. Yeah. I will also share my notes. That will be very helpful with us. I'll do that. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for being a wonderful Hello. audience. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yes, sir. Can I stick, man? Hello. Yes, sir. Madam, good evening. Good evening, sir. Um, I think uh, you are the part-time uh, to Dr. Ambedkar to open university. Your uh, voice is not audible, whether CS are allowed to uh, go uh, graduation to the Ambedkar University, madam? Sir, I, I am a chartered accountant. I am also an advocate, sir. I practice yes. as an advocate. I don't practice as a CA. I don't know, madam. Oh. But uh, you are a fa faculty for uh, Dr. Ambedkar University, no? Law University. Yes. Yeah. Whether CS can go through the graduation, law graduation, uh, through the Ambedkar University. So you have, to, you have to be a full-time uh, scholar to undergo uh, graduation in law college. Oh, oh, yeah, part-time education or uh, um, postal education is not. Bar council does not permit postal or part-time. Uh, uh, we don't want to practice law, madam, but uh, as an additional qualification to our CA qualification. That means you have to quit CA practice and then you have to take a three years course as a BL uh, course. You have to do it for three years. That only that is possible. Only that is possible, sir. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for I being a uh, audience. Thank you for your patient listening. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, ma'am. I welcome our secretary, Kishisendu Kumar, sir, to provide all of us. Thank you, Preeta. Madam, first of all, I have to thank today's faculty for immediately accepted our invitation when I called her over phone because I got her number from our immediate past SARC chairman, C.A.K. Jalabadi. When I inquired with him about the lady member speaker for this Women's Day celebration, uh, he immediately gave uh, today's faculty number only. And he told that the, she handled uh, one session in SIRC and it is a very useful one and a very beautiful manner. She explained the provisions like that he recommended to me. So whenever I called her, he immediately accepted our invitation. So thank you, madam. Thank you very much for uh, accepting our invitation and uh, spent this year Women's Day celebration. And I also thank uh, both CPE committee and uh, Women Empowerment Committee for the arrangement made for conducting this seminar. And I also thank all the members who joined this seminar uh, through this virtual mode. I also thank our branch staffs who made arrangements for uh, conducting this CPE seminar through virtual mode. Thank you. Thank you, Anandal. Thank, thank you. Maybe sometime uh, now that COVID bans are also lifted, maybe we'll... Have a physical session also sometime. Ah, yes, madam. We are also planning to conduct in future these physical meetings. Definitely, sure, we will sure. call you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was very nice uh, handling the session today. My first time for Tripur branch. Thank you so much. Yeah, madam. Good night. Okay.